I started to run out of both ideas and inspiration for sermon topics. And so I went to my congregation and asked them that if they had any good ideas for sermon topics to let me know. Well, after one Sunday, a lady came up to me and handed me not one, but two pieces of paper filled up with questions about the Bible. And so I've gone through it, and although many of them are going to take a full sermon to really dive into the topic and the, to answer the question that was asked, I found 13 questions from these two pieces of paper that I felt could be answered pretty simply and quickly. And so I figured if she had these questions, that many of you out there might also have these questions and want answers to them. So I picked out these 13 questions that I felt could be answered pretty easily, and we're just going to go through them and answer all of them. So without further ado, let's jump in. And the first five questions are going to be really specifically about the Bible and, and the way that the Bible's formatted, things like that. Then I'm going to have five more questions after that that are fairly straightforward. And then we're going to end with three more complicated questions that are a little bit more difficult to answer or just require more than just a quick answer. Not so much a full sermon to answer, but more than just a quick answer. So let's start with the first question, which is why are the Gospels the Gospels? Now, the Gospels refer to the first four books of the New Testament, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the word gospel itself means good news. That's how it can be translated. Gospel means good news. And so the reason those first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels is because it shares the good news of Jesus Christ, because those four books uh, follow the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings us into the new covenant and uh, the salvation that comes from sin. So that's why they're called the Gospels, is because that news of salvation through Jesus Christ that is available to everyone who is repentant, that, that's good news. And so that's why those four books are called the Gospels. The next question is, why is the Bible in the order that it's in. So the Bible is divided up into more genres that are booked together uh, than full chronology. So the first five books of the Old Testament are the books of law, and then those continue on, and, and those do actually go in chronological order. And those five books of law then go into books about history, and then from history, it goes into the category of poetry, and that's where you have, like, Psalms and Proverbs. Those are the poetry books. And then from there, it goes to the major prophets, like Isaiah, and then finally, the minor prophets. And so that's how the Old Testament is set up. Law, history, poetry, major prophets, and then minor prophets. Now, the New Testament, like I was saying before, the first four books are the Gospels, and then the book right after that, Acts, is historical, where it uh, follows the lives of the apostles, particularly Peter and Paul, and the acts that they performed uh, during the time of the early church. 
So after Acts, it then goes into the letters that Paul wrote to the churches that were uh, from the early church. So it moves from Acts to Paul's letters. And then after Paul's letters, it moves on to other letters that were written. And then finally ends with Revelation, which is a book of prophecy. So that's why the Bible is in the order that it's in. It's not fully chronological. It's, it is mostly chronological, but it's more paired by different genres of each of the books within the Bible. So then the next question is, why is there a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and New Testament. So between the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, which is Matthew, there's about 400 years between those two books. And the reason why that gap exists is because during that time, there were no new prophets or new revelations from God. So there was there was really nothing new during that time that needed to be added to scripture. And that's not the first time that there's been this long period of time without anything really major happening. Um, if you think about it, uh, the first 12 books or the 12, first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, the first 12 chapters covers roughly 2,000 years. And so that is a long period of time to cover in just 12 chapters. So there's a lot of time, a lot of spans of hundreds of years that just isn't being covered, again, because there's nothing really noteworthy that happened uh, during that time between, uh, that, that affects our relationship with God, you know, the relationship between mankind and God. And the same thing if you consider, you know, how long ago Revelation was written, which was, again, almost another 2,000 years. So having this long period of time where nothing really major changed between our relationship with God isn't that uncommon, and so that's why there's that gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that doesn't mean that God wasn't still speaking at all. You know, if you look at the book of Luke, uh, when Jesus was taken to the temple, there was a woman there named Anna that was a prophetess and had received revelations from God and even prophesied about who Jesus was. So we can see from that that God was still speaking to people. It wasn't that God was completely silent. It's just that there was no new major prophets or revelations. So question number four then is why is King David so important? And David is one of those figures in the Bible that is probably most recognizable. Even a lot of people who aren't Christians can still tell you about the story of David and Goliath. Uh, it's pretty common knowledge. So what makes David so important? Well, it's important to realize, first of all, that he wasn't originally important. There's nothing inherent about David that made him important. In fact, quite the opposite. He was the youngest son of Jesse, so he had that low standing of youngest son. And then he was also a shepherd, which again was a lowly position in that society. So there wasn't anything really inherent about David that made him important. What was important about David was 
his characteristics and and what he did with his life. And in fact, when uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, talked about David, he talks about how he had the heart after God. And we see that in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13, verse 14, when he's talking to King Saul about David. He says to Saul, uh, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So we see that what made David important was having a heart after God's heart. And that doesn't mean that he was exactly like God in any inherent way. That simply means that he was seeking after God in his life. And instead of seeking his will, he was looking for God's will. And then the other reason why David is important was because God promised him that the Messiah, who was Jesus Christ, would be one of King David's descendants. And we can see that in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David's line a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And that's why uh, people that lived around Jesus' time usually talked so highly about David, was because the Messiah was to come from David's line. And so again, nothing inherently important about David, uh, but because of the heart that he had, and the promises that were made to him, that's kind of why he became important. Uh, the final kind of Bible question then is, where in the Bible are the seven deadly sins? Now, I did the series on the seven deadly sins, um, and it was actually the seven deadly Disney villains, where I took the Disney villains and talked about the seven deadly sins in their lives. So I, I mentioned that during this series, but in case you haven't listened to that series, uh, the seven deadly sins aren't actually in the Bible. You can look all the way from cover to cover. Uh, the seven deadly sins are talked about throughout Scripture, but they are never grouped together or given any more uh, importance as a sin than any other kind of sin. And so the concept of seven deadly sins actually came from the Roman Catholic Church that would teach that those sins were unforgivable sins. Uh, but as far as Christians believe, that's uh, especially like Protestant Christians, that's not really the case. They aren't unforgivable. There's only one unforgivable sin, and that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which um, was described to me the best as if you're worried about doing that, you haven't done that. Um, but all other sin is forgivable. There's nothing particularly deadly about the seven deadly sins, and they aren't uh, grouped together anywhere in Scripture. So that kind of completes the specifically Bible questions. Now we're going to go to more just kind of overall questions uh, that this lady had, and we're going to do five more that are, that are kind of a little more straightforward to answer. So the first question in this group is, why do we have free will? So what's the point of free will? And I think I've also done a sermon about 
free will, and I'm not sure if I actually answered this question, but the most straightforward way to answer why we have free will is because we're made in the likeness of God. Uh, you know, we're made after God's image and, and in the same likeness as him. And so if you think about the Trinity of God, where you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mankind is made in the same way, where they have a body and a soul, and then they also have a spirit, which is your personality. It's your hopes and dreams and likes and dislikes. That's all part of your spirit. And so because we have that spirit within us, um, we have things that we desire, we have the capability to learn, we have this different personality. And then the other reason why uh, God has given us a free will is because he wants to have a relationship with us. And just like any relationship, it has to be a, a two-way thing. It has to be a back and forth. And so if God was just controlling everything that we did and we didn't have any choice in anything that we did, well, that wouldn't really be any real relationship. And so God gives us free will because he loves us, wants a relationship with us, and because of that, he made us in his same likeness with our own spirit as well. So that's why we have free will. Um, the next question here is, why do we have curiosity? And this question is actually less theological and more of just psychological. I mean, if you look at the way that any creature learns, you know, if you think about even an animal, you oftentimes learn through curiosity. Uh, you question something, you observe it, you test things out with it a little bit, and by doing those tests with whatever the object is, you learn more about that object. And so that's just kind of how God has designed us um, as living beings, is to have that curiosity so that we can learn about the world around us. And then as we learn about the world, we're able to grow in how we interact with that world. Um, so it's not really a theological thing. That's more of just how God has designed us and just kind of how our brains work. It's how we learn and grow. You need to have curiosity to begin that process of uh, learning. Uh, okay, moving on. Next question. What does the Bible say about daily activities? So working, eating, doing chores, things like that. As far as daily activities, the Bible actually says very little about what we should be doing, you know, day to day, hour by hour, week by week, all of those things. And it does that for a particular reason, because each and every life and, and each and every day within that life is going to be a little bit different. And so there's not really something that everybody can do, you know, that doesn't say anywhere in scripture to wake up at a certain time because, well, it depends on when you went to sleep and, and how much sleep you need. And if you're sick, you're going to need more sleep. And so that's just one example of how there's all these different variables that play into something as simple as how much sleep you're going to get and, and when you're going to wake up. And so you think about how each one of those different aspects of your day and your life is different from somebody else. It, it really changes so much between every day and every life that there's no one thing that everybody will always be able 
to do in every single circumstance. And so because of this, the Bible doesn't teach so much about certain activities that we should be doing on a daily basis. Instead, it teaches us certain characteristics to have so that we can then apply those characteristics to our individual lives. And if we can all have those same characteristics that are um, that come from the Holy Spirit and that are, you know, that line us up with what God's will is, when we receive those characteristics, then we can look at our circumstances and figure out how to best apply that characteristic into our circumstance that we are dealing with. And because that's going to look different for everyone, the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about daily activities. Uh, It simply teaches us characteristics that we should have instead. Uh, The next question here says, When a man becomes a man, he puts away childish things. And that's a scripture that she's referencing there. When a man becomes a man, he puts away childish things. What then does a woman do? And the answer to that question is basically the exact same thing. So that passage is from 1 Corinthians 13. And it's highlighting in that passage the the importance of growing into a position of maturity and responsibility. And that is something that is going to be the same whether you're a man or a woman. So it's not uh, gender-specific there. It's, it's simply saying that as we grow up, there are things about our childhood, certain things uh, that we thought, uh, ways that we spoke, ways that we lived, that was okay when we were a child. But as we grow up, they need to be set aside. Um, so you think about how a child, you know, is usually dressed by their parents and fed by their parents. And that's okay when you're a child, but when you grow up and you become an adult, you shouldn't still be uh, being dressed and fed by your parents. There should be a maturity and, and uh, responsibility that comes as you get older where you're now able to dress yourself and feed yourself. And so that passage of scripture is saying that we should do the same thing in our spiritual life as well, where we aren't just looking for people to tell us, do this, go here, say this, and that's what our faith should look like. Uh, It's saying, no, eventually it should get to a point where we are responsible for our own faith. We are responsible for our walk with Christ and that we can then go out and, and nurture other people in that process, just like how a child grows up and eventually becomes a parent that nurtures another child. Um, So whether you're a man who's putting away boyish things or a woman putting away girlish things, um, either way, it's putting away the childish things so that you can grow and mature and take on the responsibility of giving back to others. So the last of the uh, more straightforward questions that we have here is how do we stay thankful to God during difficult times? How do we stay thankful to God during difficult times? Well, I'll tell you the way that I do it. I always think of what I deserve 
compared to what I've been given. And so I think about Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when I think about that, that obviously I have sinned, all people have sinned, no one is perfect. And the cost of that sin is eternal death and damnation in hell. That's the price. But because of God's gift of giving his son who died on the cross for us, we don't have to pay the price for that sin, and we now have eternal life. And so when I think of that, that, well, what I deserve, which is sin, which is death and hell, that has been taken away from me. And in place of it, I've been given a gift of eternal life in heaven after I leave this life. Then really, it doesn't matter what kind of circumstance I have to face in my life here on earth, because ultimately, that's what I've been given. And so I always use that to help keep myself uh, thankful no matter what I'm going through. And it also helps to keep some of the perspective that Job had. You know, when he lost everything that he had, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So we need to remember that that we didn't start off with anything. No clothes, no uh, possessions, nothing. And it's all been given to us. And so each and everything we've been given is a gift. And ultimately, the price that we should have to pay has been taken away and replaced with the gift of eternal life. So no matter what we're going through, no matter how difficult our circumstances might seem, there is always a reason to be thankful. And that's how I keep uh, at least myself thankful. So that is the last of the straightforward questions. We've gone through 10 questions now, and we've got three left. And these last three questions are a bit more complicated. They require a bit more explanation. So let's start with the first one of those, which is what should our relationship with nature be like. Now I know that there is a lot of religions out there that are very heavy into like Mother Earth and and kind of that uh, talking to trees and you know different things like that. And we want to make sure that we recognize that all of that is separate from what our relationship should be with nature. Because we want to make sure that we don't place anything in this world on the same level as God, or even to give it some kind of God-like um, characteristics in our own mind, especially because nature is originally meant to be a witness of God. And we see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So everything in this world, all of the beauty, all of the majesty from nature is meant to point people to God. It's supposed to get people to think and realize that it would not be possible for any of this to exist unless an all-powerful, almighty God created it. And that's really what nature is supposed to be doing, is to be that witness of God. And so we don't want to give nature any more credit than it deserves, especially when you think about how the first two of the Ten Commandments talks about not having any other gods before God and not uh, making any kind of image, like physical image, to worship. And so we don't want to do that with nature of thinking, oh, well, this uh, you know, forest and waterfall is so beautiful and it deserves to be praised. No, no, no. All of that was just a, it's just a creation, just like all of us are just a creation that has been made by God and it should point us to God. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there's not still value in spending time in nature seeking after God. In fact, it can sometimes be very helpful for us to get away from the life that we're in and go out into nature, and sometimes that can help us hear God. Uh, Jesus did that a lot. All throughout his ministry, and even before he began ministry, he would often uh, seek out times of seclusion, time by himself to pray. And what I want us to realize is that, is that didn't necessarily come from the nature itself, and like God was speaking to Jesus through the trees, because God doesn't need to speak through trees. He can speak to us directly. Um, but sometimes it helps for us to be able to go to those places of seclusion so that we can quiet our own spirit to be able to hear from God. But we want to make sure that even when we're doing things like that, that we're still putting limitations on it so that we aren't separating ourselves from the rest of the world completely, trying to seek out spiritual enlightenment. Uh, I mean, you look at what Jesus prayed over his disciples at the Last Supper. He, uh, John 17, verse 15, Jesus praying over his disciples says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So Jesus even prayed for his disciples not to be removed from the world, but to remain in the world. And the same thing applies to us. And sometimes the best ways for us to hear from God is to join him in the work that he is doing among the people that he cares about. So it can be helpful to have that time of seclusion to quiet our own spirit so that we can hear from God a little bit better. But we want to make sure that we are not separating ourselves from the rest of the world entirely, but continuing to act in the work that God has called us to. So that's kind of what our relationship with nature should be like. Uh, the second of the complicated questions here is, how does God remove our shortcomings? So for this question, I want to begin by pointing out 
that God usually does not remove our shortcomings. If you look about how Paul talked in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, he talks about something that he was continuing to wrestle with. It says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So here we have Paul, one of the greatest uh, men of God to ever live, talking about something that he is continuing to wrestle with. And even though he pleaded with God three times to take it away, God said, I'm not going to take it away from you. My grace is enough for you to deal with it. So God doesn't just, however, you know, leave us out high and dry. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, verse 18, says, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And so that's the first of the things that God does for us. He doesn't take us, he doesn't just take away all of our shortcomings, but he does free us from sin. And what that means is not that he takes it away from us, but simply that he gives us the power to be able to conquer that sin in our life so that we don't have to be that slave to sin doing what that sinful desire is uh, pulling us to do. We can have victory over it. And in fact, victory is promised to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So there we are promised a way out. No matter what we're dealing with, what shortcoming we have, God gives us the power to have victory over it. And then he provides a way out so that we aren't tempted beyond what we can bear. And this all takes place just on earth. Thankfully, when we get to heaven, that's not going to be the case. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, it's talking about this new life in heaven. And it says that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So no more death in heaven. Now remember that death comes as the result of sin. It's the wages of sin that is death. And so if there's no death in heaven, that means that there is no sin in heaven. And so then when we are in heaven, we are uh, reconciled with God. That is when we will no longer have to wrestle with our shortcomings. But as far as here on earth, oftentimes God doesn't just miraculously take it away. Instead, he gives us the strength that we need to be able to overcome it. So that's kind of the answer to that question. So we've got one more here, last question, which is really quite a doozy, which is, what if we are unable to be fruitful and multiply? In other words, 
What if you're not able to have children? And that phrase being fruitful and multiply does come from scripture. Um, it was originally given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And this command to be fruitful and multiply was actually given again with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So when we look at this, these commands to be fruitful and multiply, it's important to first recognize that they are not being given on an individual level, they are being given as a command for mankind as a whole, that all of humanity is meant to be fruitful and increase in number, multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. So, we have done that. Mankind is all across the world, every continent, every country, we're all, we're all over the place. So that command has been fulfilled. And so it's important for us to realize that that was a command for mankind as a whole and not necessarily for us as individuals. In fact, uh, we get a very different message from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 9, where he says, Now to the unmarried and the widows... I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So there Paul is saying, hey, you know what? If you don't feel a desire for marriage, you don't feel a desire for the benefits of marriage, you don't have that desire, don't force it. Just stay unmarried. That's fine. That's totally okay. So that shows us that not having a child doesn't make you any less and that in not being able to do so you are in no way disobeying what god has commanded it is okay to not have children and as far as being fruitful when you look throughout scriptures there is many different ways of being fruitful and when scripture talks about fruit, it's not just talking about descendants, it's talking about many other things. For instance, in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that passage is talking about bearing fruit as we remain in Christ, as we do what Jesus has instructed us to do. And the kind of fruit that he is talking about there is sharing the gospel message. And then I also just finished this series on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So that passage is talking about a fruit that is the characteristics of righteousness that comes 
from following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So here we're seeing more of different kind of fruit that we can have in our life. Fruit of having the characteristics of God as we follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and fruit of sharing the gospel message to make new disciples, which fulfills the great commission that we have been given in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. It says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so, what happens if you're not able to have kids? Be fruitful in other ways. Show the love of Christ to others when you come across them. Find people that you can share the gospel message with and guide them into the truth of Scripture. And you will still be fruitful and multiplying the believers who follow Christ in doing so. And so in that way, you can still be fruitful and multiply as an individual, even if you're not able to have kids. So why go through all of these questions? Well, it's not just so that you can do well on a Bible trivia night, okay? The reason I've gone through all of these is to help us have a deeper understanding of Scripture. And I want us to think about the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 38, where the Ethiopian was reading Scripture, reading Isaiah, and he didn't understand what it was that he was reading. And so he needed Philip to be there to explain to him what he was reading, and that when Philip did so, the Ethiopian's eyes were opened. He understood who Jesus was and what he had done. And because of that, Philip was able to lead him to Christ and, and even baptized him right then and there. And so by Philip having an understanding of Scripture, he was able to lead the Ethiopian eunuch into the truth of the gospel message. And the same thing applies for us. That deepening our understanding of Scripture equips us to better lead others into truth, which is ultimately what God has commanded for us to do here in this world, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. And so if you out there have any questions about the Bible or theology or what it means to walk in the faith of Christ, please let me know. You can either let me know through the Facebook page or email me at sermoninthepocket at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your questions so that I can answer them and deepen your understanding of Scripture. And I encourage you to take this message and share it with other people to help get the message out there. But until next time, thank you for taking the time to listen. This has been another Sermon in the Pocket, and I pray that God will bless you as you go throughout your day. Thank you.